And welcome back to another episode of Adventures in DevOps. This week on our panel, we have Will Button. What's going on, everyone? We have Jeffrey Groman. Hey there. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And this week we have a special guest, and it is Shimon Toltz. Hi, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for hosting me. So fun. I remember working my tail off to become a senior developer. I read every book I could get my hands on. I went to any conference I could and watched the videos about the things that I thought I needed to learn. And eventually, I got that senior developer job. And then I realized that the rest of my career looked just like where I was now. I mean, where was the rush I got from learning? What was I supposed to do to keep growing? And then I found it. I got the chance to mentor some developers. I started a podcast and helped many more developers. I did screencasts and helped even more developers. I kind of became a dev hero. And now I want to help you become one too. And if you're looking forward to something more than doing the same thing at a different job three years from now, then join the Dev Heroes Accelerator. I'll walk you through the process of building and growing a following and finding people that you can uniquely help as you build the next stage of your career. You can learn more at devheroesaccelerator.com. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you brought all the energy. It's, it's funny, we were talking beforehand and you're just excited and I, I love it. Do you want to just introduce yourself real quick? Let people know who you are, what you do at, is it Dietri, Dotri? Dotri.io? Yeah, sure. Yep. So yeah, my name is Shimon. I've been in the infrastructure R&D space for more than 10 years. And I've worked at large companies like Intel and I worked at startups uh, from like 30 employees until we were a thousand employees. And my previous role, I was an engineering manager for a media company. And I grew together with the organization from 30 employees to 1,000. And oh, wow. I really saw how the struggle is real when you have 400 engineers <laughs> and you're trying to, to make this work while breaking things and moving fast. So this is actually what brought us here and what brought me to almost four years ago, me and my co-founder to open the tree, which helps prevent misconfigurations from ever reaching production environments, especially around Kubernetes. All right. So the code that crashes my stuff, that's my fault. The misconfigurations, that's somebody else's fault. I've just, I'm just being clear. I hope my <laughs> boss hears this. Anyway, so yeah, so we were, we were talking before the episode and you said that you experienced this outage and, and this is where you've learned a lot of the lessons that led to Dutri. Do you want to just talk about that? Kind of give us the background and the story so that we know what you screwed up? I mean, how that went. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure thing. So let me describe the, the scenery first, you know, like in a book. So imagine a company and you have 1,000 employees, 400 of them are developers. The company is born in the cloud, uh, paying $1.5 million for AWS every month. A lot oh, wow. of stuff running. No one actually knows what is everything? But it, it kind of works, you know. <laughs> and moving really, really, really fast, working in microservices, a lot of different programming languages. And the philosophy of the company is, you know, like small speedboats, like Amazon calls it two pizza teams. You know, you have your team, you find you have a problem, you find the best solution, you go, you do it, you're responsible for it. Sounds mm -hmm. great. Removes bottlenecks, makes you move fast and really 
gives great energy for people because they don't feel like they're a small, small screw in a big organization. And my role there was the general manager of the infrastructure division. So my work was to find things that are relevant to all the other teams and build it as an infrastructure. So, for example, we built a data collection pipeline that ingested more than 200 billion with a B every month events from 13 regions in AWS. And we this is what we would do. And every time there's a new technology or something that is cross the company, we would be responsible for it, my team. And sort of like sort of special ops in a way. And one day we had a production outage. Now this happens, you know, we're all people. I make mistakes. Everyone makes mistakes besides Charles. It's, uh, it happens. <laughs> and <laughs> and like uh, every company, we said, okay, let's post-mortem the problem, understand what happened. Let's find the root cause. And we did it. And a developer made a misconfiguration in one manifest file. And we said, okay, we, we totally understand people make mistakes and we want we, we believe in the philosophy of, you know, run fast and break things. But we, we don't believe in the philosophy of let's make the same mistake five times, you know. It's, there is a limit to that as well. So we said, okay, so how do we make sure that this does not happen again? So first of all, you send the postmortem in an email to everyone in the company. So we tried that. Nice. Doesn't really work. No one reads it. No one remembers it. And I got to tell you from the other side as a developer, getting emails every day telling me like, use this package, use this configuration, check this thing. It's it's not scalable. Like, how am I supposed to remember everything? It's, it's just not feasible. Yep. And we said, okay, we, we, we did, you know, internal uh, educational systems and then we did an internal meetup and explained to everyone and everyone agreed and everyone understands, but it, it didn't really work well because I think, and this is what we thought, and this is what drove us to actually open the company is that it has to happen in an automated way within the development flow of the developer. Because every inch, every small thing that you, you do in order to change the workflow of the developer, it's it's crazy. It's almost never going to happen. And if it's going to happen, it's going to be very, very painful for the developer, for the manager, and for the company. So we said, how can we do something that will be seamless in the flow? Because when we spoke with people, they said, I want to know when I'm doing something wrong. I I'm, don't want to be the person that submits secret keys into our public GitHub repository. I don't want to be the person that takes production down. But but sometimes I just don't know. And this is what drove us to actually opening the tree and building a solution that hooks directly within the development workflow. So it's a CLI utility. You can run it on your laptop, Linux and Mac. Just run the tree test on your Kubernetes manifest file or Helm file. And then we provide out-of-the-box predefined policies. So I'll give you simple examples that seems, you know, really trivial, but people don't do it. It's like memory limit, CPU limit, a liveness probe, readiness probe, pulling containers from a centralized registry, not using the latest Docker tag, because then every time you build it, it's like going to the casino. You don't know which version you're going to get. You don't know what, you, what you're going to have in, in production. Like, you know? And next, after you have it in your computer, you install it in your CI CD. And at this point, this is one of the most powerful things because you get a centralized policy management solution. So I, as the DevOps engineer, can identify a problem, think of a policy that I want to apply to all of my 100 or 50 or 5,000 engineers, 
And with a click of a button, I can enable a policy. And now all the projects that go through this CICD pipeline will actually comply with this policy. And otherwise, it will fail. And the idea is that once it fails, it does not notify the DevOps person. It explains the developer what do they have to do and shows them and links them to Wiki and to our docs and tells them, hey, Mr. Developer, hey, Mrs. Developer, this is how you can fix it. So we are very, very proud of it because I really believe that this is how I would want my organization to communicate those policies and practices to me as a developer. As an engineer, quit telling me what to do. (laughs) (laughs) No, it makes sense. And to be perfectly honest, you know, so yeah, I I write web develop. I'm a web developer for a fairly large financial firm. And what's nice is a lot of this stuff does kind of get pushed into our CICD. But... The other nice part of it is that generally when these kinds of policy changes come down, and I don't think they're using the tree. I think they're using just, we're making this policy change and we're configuring Jenkins to do it. But they generally are pretty good about going in and making the initial move, right? So they they move it to the to match the policy. And then from there, when it lines up with whatever we're doing, that's when we get to the point where it's like, okay, so then if we change something that messes it up, right, then it's on us. Okay, we can roll this back. But yeah, they're usually the ones that initially make it comply. And I just wanted to add that because I think there's some level of responsibility that goes both ways. And so that's what I like about this. But if you're the one that's making the initial change that's going to cause it to fail in CI, then you probably also ought to be the person that's either working with somebody or doing the work yourself to make it comply in the first place. I totally agree. And this is why when we designed our policy engine, we designed it to have several points of granularity. So first of all, you can see what, how am I doing now? Let's scan my GitHub repositories and see, do I have any violations now or not? Secondly, you can enable a rule in a way that uh, we call it gradual rollout. So mm-hmm. now every time that they make a change that is not compliant, it will tell them, listen, on August 1st, this change will not be complied. Now you can it, it is passing and that's okay, totally fine. But just so you know, we're going to have a policy in place in August 1st. And this is the policy and here you have time to actually prepare to it. And then once August 1st hits, then it fails as a warning and not as enforcement. And then you have a grace period for adoption of the policy. And only then at the end of the end of the end, it actually goes to full enforcement. And you're totally right. This is the feedback that we got from our customers. And this is how they designed it. And we built it because this is how they want it. Now, that's super cool. I really like the approach of, you mentioned the path of how you got here through the emails and the the meetings and the, the workshops and stuff. But really all that, is only relevant at the time and doing it this way. I think one of the key things there is that you're meeting the developers where they are because that's it's, that's the right time to introduce the solution or the information is when it's relevant to them. Otherwise, it's just out of context. I totally agree. You have to get the warning and the, the, the data in line. I call it in line. And this is why we're working on we have a Helm plugin, working on a KubeCuttle plugin, VS Code plugin, everything. And this is very important because if it's not convenient and if it's not in the developer's workflow, then I'll give you a story, okay? 
I met with a big enterprise company and they, they, they talked to me about the uh, certain policy that we have that says like pull containers from the centralized registry of the company. So it's like mm-hmm. docker at companyacme.com, right? And and he's like, it's it's a good policy. I want uh, to use your solution instead of ours. And I'm like, what what's your solution? So what do you do today? Oh, we just block Docker Hub in our firewall and no one can access it. <laughs> and I'm like, what? <laughs> Problem solved. For real? This is a real, really? This is what he told me? I was shocked. I feel I better like, now. What? <laughs> and he's like, yeah, we, we just block it in the DNS and firewall level and that's it. And they can't pull it from there. And <laughs> and I think that this is absolutely not the way to do it. <laughs> and as we go forward, developers want to a shift left nice to play solution. Yeah, that, that, that works until your developers get smart enough to figure out how to use a VPN or other ways of getting Proxy around. server, yeah. Sure. Yeah. I mean, this is security by obscurity. It's yeah, yeah, it's the wrong way. <laughs> I was gonna say Jurassic Park way. nature or developers will find a way. <laughs> yeah, <right>. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. You know, just to pile on I, I totally love this idea too. And it's it really speaks, I think, to like the whole DevOps mentality of like flow and like pull requests versus push requests. Cause I think, you know, the way you were describing it earlier, Shimon, was that it's basically just you know, pushing stuff out, which never really works all that well. But if you as Will said, you get the timing right so that now developers can pull that information as they need it. The timing is right. The method is right. The information is is there for them to pull. It just, uh, you know, so again, I'm, I know I'm just piling on, but I just feel like it, it actually really fits really nicely and elegantly than the whole like, DevOps, you know, sort of methodology. But, you know, I got to say, of course, I gave a very radical uh, example now, but when we meet with companies uh, that are at this crossroad, because they say, okay, listen, we scale, we had 30 developers, it was okay, 40, 50, like now we have like 70 developers, it's COVID, we're all working from home, you can't come to just a room and ask, hey, how do we do this and that? And it's like, we, we need to put something in place. And then I see companies choose two different paths. It's, a, it's like two, two opposites that, that you can go to. And of course, I think that the, the best solution is the middle ground. But like some companies go the whole way, the, the, the whole way to, okay, so DevOps is responsible for the cluster, which is true in many organizations. Mm-hmm. They're responsible for the operational excellence of the cluster and, and for the day-to-day operations. But then the developers write the application. Then what they say is, okay, so now everything, change that a developer makes to a Kubernetes manifest or Helm or anything that touches the infrastructure has to go through the ops team. Now, what happens at this point is that there's a huge bottleneck. Eventually, it frustrates both sides because the developers, they have the R&D backlog and the product sitting on them with timelines that they need to release stuff. And they're waiting for the ops team to approve it. The ops team, they don't want to babysit developers and tell them, listen, you forgot you're pulling the latest image, put up in down version. No, because it's not interesting. They want to do cost reduction. They want to optimize the performance. They want to upgrade it. They want to bring the new best versions, you know, do crazy POCs. And then like all all sides are, are basically frustrated. Because they babysit developers, the developers don't get autonomy, and at the end of the day, it's just 
bottleneck the DevOps. And not to talk about the fact that SRE and DevOps teams are usually like one to 10 developers. So you might have like 10 DevOps people to 100 or 200 developers. So yeah, that, that's can, one side. I, I can definitely identify with this. I mean, I'm, I'm working on a project right now that's on several timelines, right? And yeah, whenever things won't deploy, when it doesn't play nicely with the cluster, things like that, we get frustrated, right? And then my boss gets frustrated and he, it's like, why isn't this out there, right? And then, you know, well, <laughs> DevOps, right? And so then they go to DevOps and it's the same thing, right? And then the DevOps guys, sometimes it's, okay, well, let's, they'll go figure out what it is and it's something that they can fix. And sometimes they're coming back to us and saying, well, there's this problem. And they yeah, they don't want to come back to us and and manage us and and my nobody else is happy because whoever the powers that be are for the business needs they just want it out right and so yeah that what you're talking about and we've run into this more than once over the last year and then it's like it, what I'm telling you now I heard it from several and several companies multiple times and just to tell you another example the, the most common thing is that they come to DevOps and tell them I have a deadline and then they go like yeah but the CFO told me to do cost reduction on AWS so what do I do do I listen to the CTO to the CFO or do I listen to the VP R&D or like what's more important and who knows <laughs> I don't know it's uh, it's hard mm-hmm. now let's talk about the other side the other side is actually when this happens, but um, DevOps does not assume responsibility and, and they, they go the path of educating the developers and they say, no, we're not going to lock everything. We're not going to lock anything, but we're going to put additional efforts into educating the developers in order to making the right decisions, which is nice. The thing is, while this happens, you're really not sleeping at night both because you're afraid and because you're getting like pager, paged for things that are happening. And secondly, the, the developers are, I find them terrified. They go like, I'm, I'm going to, to, to do that something that is going to, to, to change production now. And they go like, I'm a Java billing engineer. I don't know Docker. I don't know Kubernetes. I'm an expert in Java billing, <laughs> not in uh, you know Docker. I don't know. And then you find them like almost crippled because because they, they're afraid. They say, I'm, I don't know. I'm not an expert and, and I'm afraid to break it and I don't want to do it. And then the teams, they try to educate them and so on. But I think that what, what goes best and it's solutions like the tree or you can take OPA, Open Policy Agent, with ConfTest and, and the Gatekeeper and write your own policies. And, and what I've heard from developers is that when the middle ground, they call it, I feel like I have guardrails. Like I'm riding the freeway, but I have guardrails. So I, I can do it by myself. I'm not bottlenecked by DevOps. But if I do something horribly wrong, the system will stop me. And then and then it's like a, a nice middle ground between the two, which I think can can greatly help both sides of the equation. I think that's one of the approaches I try to take and specifically in postmortems, you know, because in postmortems, a lot of the focus is on root cause and what went wrong. But I try to take it a little bit further than that and say, you know, the failure was not that this code did whatever. The failure is that the system didn't warn somebody that this was going to happen, right? We, we built an environment where a developer or an engineer was able to make a change that they shouldn't have been allowed to make. And I think that's what you're describing there. 
is they're free to do whatever they want, but there's the guardrails in place that keep them from doing something that they didn't intentionally want to do. It's like in AWS, you go delete the resource and it's like, there are 15 resources attached to this security group. <laughs> I guess you don't want to delete this security group. <laughs> so what, one thing I'm curious about, Shimon, is, is when you talk about your clients, I'm, I'm curious to hear what are the common sort of misconfigurations? You know, like, I don't know, if you were to say, if, if, if you know, if you were to ask you, hey, what are the top five or top 10? I'm really curious to hear like what you see commonly. It's just, yeah, common. Great question. It's an absolutely great question. And uh, by the way, in our docs, hub.thetree.io, we, we list all of the policies that we have and, and you can view everything. So let's go over some categories and talk about them and talk about the their, their severity. So one one uh, one company, very big messaging company, told me he told me I want an if infra safety score. I want this to run and for me to be to feel safe. Not not safe in regards to security safe. Also, it also has security aspects. But I want to to know that my safety score is high. So it starts from resource management. So in Kubernetes, for example, you can have CPU requests and CPU limit, memory limit and memory requests. This is very, very common. And it especially happens because the, the developer, she codes the app and then she sends it to the cluster. She doesn't know what is she going to be paired with. Now, the DevOps engineer works on workload management and optimizes the workloads on the different nodes. So it will be cost-effective. And the problem starts when you don't have memory and CPU limits, and then you have a memory leak in one of your containers, and then it starts affecting, it's like a noisy neighbor, but very, very noisy. And then Kubernetes starts to, it, it depends on how you configured it and so on, but it starts to kill services, starts to run out of memory. There are different behaviors that, None of them is good and none of them is as expected. So I'd say this is the like no-brainer one that uh, you should do. And now what we see companies usually do also is that they start and they apply cluster-wide memory and CPU limit because you can do it on the runtime level. The problem starts when you know you have different departments. One of them needs four gigabytes of memory and it's great. But then you have the AI engineers and they're like, we need 40 gigabytes. And then if you don't configure it on a shift left side, then you go like, okay, so I need to increase everyone's limit to 40 gigabytes. And then it's like nothing. It's, it doesn't, doesn't matter. So it's really important to set it on the resources side. So that's one. The second one is, I would say, around workload management in terms of making sure that you have a liveness probe, a readiness probe, that your Docker container has a health check. It sounds so trivial. It sounds so simple. But so many times people go and, and create the workload, don't set those things. They just, oh, they just HTTP to it. And, ah, HTTP 200, it works, great. <laughs> and then they don't configure it on the workload level. And uh, not to talk about, you know, deeper things where you have a service and you want the health check to include uh, maybe a connection to a database or to a cache. And I would really, really advise to, like, in order to increase your safety and stability, 
really put an effort into your health checks, readiness, liveness, because if you do it right and correctly, once things fail and things always fail, it will be easy for you to find the root cause. And it will be easy for you to protect yourself and for Kubernetes to kill this workload and to get another workload running. So let me just stop you there because I, I always like to ask the dumb questions. So I think I think I understand what you're saying, but for some of our for other people, you know, our listeners who may not have followed that whole train of thought, right? Because there's a lot there you just said in in two minutes that I feel like we could unpack, right? So I, I'm going to say, it and then you're going to tell me how wrong I am or if I miss something. But so let's say we, we spin up, you know, I we we we, uh, we send out a new package, we spin it up. And I'm the developer, so what I do is I just check to say, hey, can I hit, can I, can I, with my browser, hit it, and I get a 200 response back saying, we're good. So that's only a piece of it, because maybe I'm only hitting, let's say, the load balancer. And so the load balancer is saying, I'm here, right? I'm answering you, but the application behind it is dead. Or maybe the application is alive, but the database behind it is dead. So unless I'm doing health checks that are so short of going through those steps, we may have had we, we may have just deployed something that broke everything and I don't even realize it because all I'm doing is pinging the the load balancer and getting a 200 response and everything looks good to me because I didn't check what's going on behind, you know, like sort of peeling back the layers of the onion. It, did I get that right or am I missing something? Absolutely right. This is one of the most common mistakes developers make is they just check the, the simple front-end web browser and they don't do the entire process. And then when you do have a problem, it's so hard to debug it because everything returns a great health check. So, and you don't understand what is actually the problem. So is this something that, you know, like, like the tree does for you? Is this something I've got to figure out? Like, how does that, you know, how, how do you build that into a health check? So it sounds like there's a lot of steps and, and, it, and it really depend on, the architecture of your application. Yeah. So we, we can talk about it from an engineering standpoint. In, in terms of the tree, the tree is a tool. And it's a tool that you can use in order to say, listen, from now on, all of our Kubernetes workloads are going to have a liveness probe, a readiness probe. Now, how you configure this liveness probe and readiness probe is up to you. Same thing. You're going to put a memory limit. If you put a memory limit of 64 megabytes and your server can't even, it's some Java, huge jar, I don't know, it can't even load up, it's its your problem. But what we will do is we will make sure that a policy exists and, and that it, uh, it is configured on the resource. The next layer is another thing uh, that is like, what is the most common, uh, you know, policies? Uh, it's actually labels. Again, it sounds so simple. It sounds so trivial to put a label. And there are so many reasons why to put a label. So I'll start with, with the one that we're talking about now. So first of all, you can use labels in order to say what type of workload it is in order to determine which type of policy in terms of resource management, for example, it should use. So then you could say this is from type AI and they use those types of limits and those are from type backend, frontend, I don't know, different teams call it in different names. And, and you can use it in order to understand what are the, the, the relevant policies you should use. This is number one. Number two, cost management. This is also a very, very common use case that DevOps people have to deal with. 
which is constantly knowing to assign the cost center because they run the shared resources. And at the end of the day, they pay the check to AWS or Azure or whatever you run it. And, and then the internal company goes like, okay, but how much do we need to build each business unit inside of our organization? And then they go like, I don't know, we had like 5,000 servers. And, and then they go like, okay, now it's mandatory. Everyone should say which department this server belongs to because otherwise we're not going to know how much to allocate to it because then you don't know what is the COGS cost of goods of your business. And then the CFO doesn't know if, if the business is, is profitable or not profitable. Or can we hire people? Can we not hire people? And it's crazy because it's, it's like board of directors decisions that go down to the CFO, that go down, 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 down to the simple label that you need to put on your Kubernetes workload in order to know how much it costs. Can you define for us the difference between a liveness probe and a readiness probe? That is a great question. So Liveness Probe works on, I'll say readiness. Readiness Probe is when I'm ready to serve traffic. So let's say I'm initializing myself. I need to start. I need to go create a cache, make sure that I can put it there and so on. And then a Liveness Probe is when I'm running. Am I running correctly? Can I continue communicating, for example, with my existing cache or whatever it is? I like the... I think I think it's too much. I like the health, the simple health check, you know, that that goes end to end and 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 does the the check. In addition, by the way, I also uh, suggest for companies it has nothing to do with the tree and so on, but like to configure outside health checks that actually go and do a user activity on your services for real, because the worst thing you want is a c- customer calling and saying the service is down. You want to be the first to know. So I think that those are the the main things that I, I would focus on. Yeah, it's a really good point. I've been in a few outages where everything was working internally, but nothing was working externally. Yep. I'll tell you one of my uh, most severe outages. It was so hard to debug. It was uh, my previous company. Uh, it was not an outage. It, it was even worse. What's worse than an outage? everything slows down and works really, really bad and you, it doesn't break. So you don't really know. And it was a data pipeline that collected 200 billion events every month. And it it was a geolocation-based routing. So it would every time someone will click an ad, it will route to the closest AWS region and send the event there. And then we had 13 regions that would send everything to a centralized kinesis. And then we would have workers that would process it. Now, in order to do deduplication and add some attributes, we, we had a Redis cache. And this ready, so all the workers would access the Redis cache in order to put in IDs, select IDs, and so on. And at some point, we, the amount of messages increased. You know, slowly, 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 slowly. And then at some point, the memory of the Redis got filled. So what did it do? It switched to swap. What's the problem with swap? It's slow. And then all the requests started returning really, really slowly. And then you don't understand. You think, okay, there's a problem. So you put on more servers. And then <laughs> they bombard the Redis even more. And then you put on more workers. And, if, and, and, and like you're trying everything from, like you're just trying to debug everything until finally we're like opening. It was like, oh my God, the Redis is running on swap. <laughs> <laughs> and then we had to increase the Redis memory, and then and then it fixed it. And if we had a check that a liveness check that said I'm going to perform a put event to the Redis, and I expect it to take 
two to four milliseconds. I'm just making this up. And if at some point this is more than four milliseconds, there's a problem. We would have immediately knew where is the root cause of this issue. But we didn't. <laughs> That's the truth. <laughs> Are you under increasing pressure to ship code faster than ever before? Then it's time to work smarter with Raygun's modern approach to error and performance monitoring. Raygun gives you instant visibility into the health of your software, and what makes it so unique is that it not only tells you when something's gone wrong, it shows you exactly where it's gone wrong and how to fix it, right down to the line of code. Made by developers for developers, Raygun has built a suite of monitoring tools that are used and loved by thousands of software teams every day. Monitor every corner of your tech stack with widespread language support and native integrations with GitHub, Jira, Slack, Bitbucket, Octopus Deploy, and more for even greater visibility. Visit Raygun.com to resolve issues faster and deliver flawless digital experiences for your users. That's Raygun.com to get started on your free 14-day trial with plans starting from as little as $4 per month. Yeah, another good reason why postmortems are so important. I'm curious to know, because here's my anecdotal, I guess, experience, is that I find that very few organizations do postmortems well. And if they're doing them, I don't think that they do them in a very effective way. I think they do them in more of a finger-pointing root cause analysis. Who caused the problem and who should we fire, right? And I just feel like... Uh, yeah? You feel that? Unfortunately. Now, listen, listen, I'm on the security side. So a lot of the postmortems I'm involved with are security incidents. So those might be a little bit, you know, handled a little bit differently than like a you know, typical outage or or that sort of situation but yeah I will, feel like, will did it right <laughs> yeah i mean so i i guess i should say i i feel like most of the time the postmortems just don't happen i feel like the times that they do it almost becomes a witch hunt and those are very rare but when they do happen again that's just my experience they just just get nasty. So I, I'm curious. I, I want to hear a better story because I, I feel like my experience is, is, is not good. I've never experienced anything like it, th th thankfully. The organizations that I've worked with, my company, thank God we did not have a security incident that someone stole all of our records or something because then I think you're like obligated to take action. And, and, and maybe most of the... the like your cases were those type of severe cases where, you know, it's it's just, it's like borderline, like federal. It's like, a, it's really right. a problem. Um, right. What I am, yeah. Yeah. What I'm referring to is more of a, you know, engineers and like, uh, like the, the Redis uh, story I just told you, who are you going to fire? No one. It's just going to make everyone uh, better, you know, and tell them and then think of how we could have fixed it. And then we implemented the check. Believe me, every time there was a problem, the first thing everyone checked was the Redis. <laughs> everyone went to see that Redis <laughs> is okay. <laughs> it was like a small baby that everyone takes care of. But I don't believe in the witch hunts. I, I really believe in the culture where people come and, and they say I made a mistake and people help them understand. And Again, as long as there was no like negligence, mm. I don't know, you know, something criminal or something like that, right, people make sure. mistakes. Another story, there was an employee, it was her first day, uh, the company was still using SVN and not Git. And on her first day on the job, she deleted the entire Git, SVN uh, tree. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> no, nothing happened to her. Because... Sort of back up. 
yeah, so IT restored the backup and uh, it's okay. But um, I think this is the main difference. I don't know what is your experience. Personally, I've seen both ways. You know, I remember in years past, postmortems were the lynch mob had the pitch the pitchforks and the torches trying to find out who we were going to grab. But I think that's, in my experience, that's gone away over the last few years to people being more willing to accept that mistakes happen. But it's it's almost feels like a, a pendulum where now it's an it's over overly trying too hard, I guess, to make sure that someone doesn't feel attacked in the postmortem, that you never get to the root cause either. You know, and, and so I think you gotta struggle to find the happy medium there. And I mean, ultimately, you know, in a lot of these situations, someone did do something incorrect. And you've got to point that out in order to identify it. And when you point it out, you know, you're not like calling that person out or attacking their skills. It was just a mistake that happened, but it's important to fully understand what that mistake was so that you can build in the systems to prevent it from happening again. Yeah. Yeah. I've I've been in the situation where, and not because of a postmortem, but just because of other things, you know, I had a boss come in once on, on one of the teams, I was team lead and he basically walked in the room and said, somebody's getting fired today. Right. And you don't want people to feel that. Right. Cause, cause I took him outside and I said, I said, if you, if you're going to pull this, they're all keeping their jobs. I'm just going to quit. Right. And, and it's because nobody should live in that kind of fear. Right. We're all trying to work on the same thing. But the flip side is, is yeah, I mean, if somebody is routinely reckless, right, it it's always Jim, right? It, it's gone down four times this month and Jim has been the one to mess it up every time. And this is all stuff that we've done training on. And so Jim should know better. You know, the first time, hey, Jim's a human. Second time, Jim's still a human. Third time, okay, Jim's a human, but Jim is starting to cause some problems. You can have the conversation about whether or not Jim needs to keep his job. But if people feel like, they're going to be punished for making a mistake every once in a great while, then you're going to slow the whole system way down. And the whole point, as Shimon keeps pointing out, is we want to keep moving fast. We want to move fast. We want to get stuff out. We want to solve problems for our customers as quickly as possible. And at the same time, maintain some level of stability. Yeah, really agree. I think the last point I would make is that I, I think the whole idea of root cause analysis, even if it is one person's, you know, at the end of the day, even if you can tie it back to one person's typo or mistake or whatever, I, I personally feel like the root cause analysis is generally flawed in a, in in that it's rarely one person, right? It's mm-hmm. it might be one person, you know, again who who typed it in wrong or did whatever, but there's a process breakdown as well, and there was an authority breakdown there were, or like what she was talking about before the guardrails didn't exist. You, you, you just can't point it at one person. Like it's the system broke down. Yes. It, it resulted in somebody's mistake in a manifest file or something like that. But if you go, you know, if you take it back, you look at it and you say, well, wait a second, guys, it's because our process isn't all that great. He was trying to do the best he could. He didn't know or whatever it was. You can't be an expert in everything made a mistake, but it's because the entire process broke down, not just because one person made a mistake. And I feel like 
that's the piece that, you know, when you're trying to do the root cause analysis, that's the piece that people just don't think about. I totally agree. Just just to finish on this point, uh, the best root cause analysis process that I have ever seen in my life is GitLab. They went down and they've opened a live docs that everyone could see, all the customers, all everyone. And they've had uh, sessions that are like open, uh, uh, Google Hangout or Zoom, I don't remember what they did, and anyone could join. And it was a totally transparent process of them debugging the outage that they had. And of course, afterwards, they, they, they published everything, like uh, including like logs, uh, crazy stuff. And like, here's what happened. Here's for transparency. And here's for you to learn how not to make our mistakes. And I really admired it. Yeah, I think there's something to be said for gaining credibility with your customers whenever they find out that there's an outage from you instead of them telling you that there's an outage. And then you provide real-time or near-time updates to them up until the issue is resolved. Definitely. So I think we've all seen the scenarios where AWS has had an incident and you find out about it either personally or on Reddit three or four hours before the AWS status page updates. That is if it did not affect the status page because that happened as well. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's interesting to me too, right? Is that sometimes it's, hey, we screwed this stuff up and so therefore our app didn't run. And then, yeah, we see these big companies that use a lot of the AWS or other infrastructure on the out there in the cloud. And what winds up happening is, yeah, what we're kind of talking about, except they take down the entire U.S. East internet. one region, right? And everybody yeah. goes, why is the internet not working? And yeah, it, it turns out that, yeah, the internet relied on that, that region for a whole bunch of stuff and it's gone. And so those kinds of externalities too, where it's it goes beyond even your code, your company, your infrastructure, your cloud setup, th- that's fascinating too. And those cases, you know, as Will's pointing out, we all kind of want to know, right? Because it's affecting everybody. This is why, you know, it was very interesting when Jeffrey said that like witch hunt and so on. And I think this is like the the the, the fine line between security and infrastructure where it's like the culture and infrastructure is like, yeah, we all like 17 outages and no problem. And then when it crosses this line, specifically, you know, uh, privacy, security, um, you know, personal identifying information. And then it's like, okay, something's different going to happen here. And, And it's interesting because in organizations like government organizations, there are, special ways to investigate what happened, let's say in a military, when there was an operation. So they want to learn from it. So there are two two paths of investigation. One path is like the regular path. They investigate and like they can put someone to jail and so on. And then there is, it's called a professional combat review where everyone can say whatever, they can say, I killed someone and they will not be uh, eligible for every, anything. Like they can't do anything to them. And they have 100% immunity in this process. And this is done in order to be make sure that we learn and, and that everyone say what really, really happened. And like everything you say there is classified, it cannot be used against you and so on. So I, I think it's also an interesting thing to think about in our field. I totally agree. I, I, I feel like the organizations that, yeah, like I said, I think the witch hunt you know, mentality is a terrible one, it, regardless of what, what happened. I mean, unless you... 
are talking about, like we said before, malfeasance or negligence or something like that, mm-hmm. or, you know, beyond negligence, but, you know, really criminal negligence, like, which rarely happens, right? It's, it's generally speaking, you know, it's a breakdown of process and, and then just fix it. I mean, just work together and fix it. Nobody wants to, I mean, I, I've just been involved in so many companies post-breach and it's like everybody just wants things wants things to go back to normal. It's like COVID, right? Everyone just wants things to go back to normal. Like, let's just get past this, move on, you know, do what we have to do, but let's stop reliving it on a daily basis. Yep. All right. Well, I, I think we're kind of getting toward a place where we can start to wrap up. Are there any other kind of big pieces of advice that we need to put out there before we go to our picks? I want to point out one thing, which I really believe in which is, it's a big word called GitOps, but in in general, make sure that all of your configuration and all of your assets, everything is in code and and in Git. And and if you live with one thing from this podcast is make sure that everything is infrastructure as code and in Git, because then you will be able to at least see what happened and what was the configuration and how did we configure it. So this is my final small remark. That's good advice. All right. Well, let's roll into picks then. Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. Jeffrey, do you want to start us off with the picks? All right. So this is something I I was just thinking about. I was actually thinking about as we're talking, you know, just having our conversation here. So my pick isn't a specific thing. It's more of just an approach. So I I get asked all the time, like, how do you, you know, sort of continue, continuously learn and, um, you know, learn new technologies, new, um, you know, sort of stay on top of current threats. It's technology in general is just that constantly changing space. But I mean, honestly, I think it applies beyond technology. Our world is just constantly changing. And how do you stay on top of that? And and how do you do that without spending eight hours a day just trying to read or learn or watch or whatever? Um, and I, so a couple of things that I have learned. So I, I think there's more of just ideas than, uh, than actual like go, out, go out and buy a product or, or something like that is... You know, the way that we learn, I think, you know, there are different, you know, different people do learn differently. But what I've seen is that, you know, there's so much out there now, like on YouTube, for instance. Um, I mean, there's so much content out there, but it takes a long time to go through, especially now that everything has ads in it. So now, now every video takes much longer to get through, <laughs> right? But it, if what you're trying to learn is very specific, it's sometimes harder to figure out how to learn it because, you um, there are so many blog posts that are too too generic or just repeating what everybody else has already said on the topic already. And everyone just wants to put it into their blog to try and, you know, get whatever it is, SEO or get, you know, traction out of it, traffic, that sort of thing. Um, or you can try and, you know, pick it out of like a video, but, you know, you could be going through a 60 minute video and trying to figure out where, where it is. So I think part of it is, and there's no real answer here, but part of it is just figuring out what's the best medium for learning what I'm trying to learn? Am I just trying to get an overview of it, of that subject? Then maybe a video is good. If I'm trying to learn something very specific, maybe going to like Stack Overflow. And I think building that skill set in yourself of figuring out what is it that I'm trying to learn and what's the best way for me to get there. 
is something that we all have to just sort of develop. And I think a lot of us who've been doing this for years, you're probably thinking, yeah, I've been there, I've done that, I think I'm, I'm there already. But I think for some of the people earlier on in their in their in their career, um, this might be something that you should really be thinking about is just how to be most efficient um, learning something new. And obviously it also goes back to figuring out what the best sources are, because like I said, there's a lot of content out there and it's just regurgitating what's what's already out there and, and sort of dumbing it down sometimes, like pulling out some of the details. So those sources, you know, you want to toss and you want to just sort of go to, you know, figure out what are the right sources that, that you know, give you the right information. So that's one piece. The other thing I was going to say is I think sometimes, a lot of times we are, we have this sort of natural tendency to look, look for, you know, when, when we do have to buy something, we think about what's the cheapest product out there, right? What's, and I think that so many, so often, the cheapest product actually takes you more time, more energy, and you end up having to do things over, you know, over again or whatever. And it's not the cheapest product. And I think, um, you know, it's it's again, you know, as you go through that learning and figuring out what are, what is it that I need, don't fall into the trap of just buying the cheapest product. Sometimes it's buying the more expensive product. I mean, sometimes it is the cheapest product. You only need, it's a use once type of thing, or you know, I'm really going to use it. Great, but. If it's something you're not going to, uh, that you are going to continue to use, spend some time figuring out, does it make sense to invest in something a little bit, you know, better quality? So anyway, those are my two picks, methodologies, whatever thoughts for, for the day. Nice. Will, what are your picks? All right. So I have been working my way through this book, The Manual from Epictetus. So he was a Stoic philosopher and I've actually tried to read Marcus Aurelius's meditations in the past and not really sure how much I actually retained from that. So I came across this book and I really like it because it's just, um, it's very short. Like each page just has one particular quote or saying from Epictetus. And it's been really helpful to just kind of come to understanding with the whole Stoic philosophy and that in combination with daily emails, the email list from the dailystoic.com. I start each day by reading those and it's a really good way to kind of level set your mind before you get started in a day and put things in perspective, because I think that's helpful, especially with the amount of information. And if you can't avoid the news that's going on every day, it kind of helps you temper that message and, uh, and keep things into more of a longer range perspective. So the manual from Epictetus and the dailystoic.com are my picks for today. Nice. What do I have for picks? So Father's Day, I've got a couple of picks uh, for stuff that I did or got for Father's Day. The first pick that I have is my wife's like, okay, you get to control the TV, which never happens at my house, both because I don't watch a ton of TV and because my kids just are on video games all day during the summer. So, you know, I'll go down there and I'll just kind of see what's going on. But uh yeah, so on Sunday afternoon, I watched Willow, which is uh, one of my favorite old timey movies. So uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna pick that because I enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. Of course, all my kids. The second we turn it on, they 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 sat there for 10, 15 minutes and then just cleared out of the room. And I'm just like, I'm like, guys, it's a good movie. <laughs> <laughs> whatever, whatever. Anyway, the other pick that I have. So my wife, I've I've been having issues. My grill has been falling apart for a few years. And I like cooking me some meat. So uh, I, my wife got me a Traeger smoker for Father's Day. Oh, nice. Um, and it's got a couple of meat probes in it and stuff like that, which is super nice because 
a lot of time. It's not, it doesn't have Bluetooth or anything in it. I know some of the more expensive models do, but it's nice just because you can kind of cook it to temperature and then, you know, you're ready to pull it out. Right. And so anyway, made, made a brisket on it for father's day. So good. Oh my gosh. (laughs) You know, I've got some baby back ribs in the fridge that I, I need to throw on there sooner rather than later. But uh, it's it's just it's so nice and and all of the stuff that you kind of cook on the slow cook end of things, it ju- they just come out so 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 good, right? So the other forms of that, I guess, are like the crock pot or the sous vide. But yeah, the smoker's nice too because it gets all this flavor in there. And anyway, yeah, I I am loving having a Traeger, so I'm gonna pick that. Shimon, what are your picks? So by the way, I'm I'm gonna have a barbecue now. Fifteen of my friends are coming. And I have a Napoleon grill and I really love grilling. And I also, I always measure the temperature of the meat and the, I really, really love it. In terms of my picks, so I I found daily.dev. It's something cool that you can, uh, daily.2, sorry, that no, am I, I'm, I'm, mis- I'm mistaking several things here. It's called daily.dev and it's a Chrome homepage extension. So when you open up a new tab, it actually shows you like stuff from news and stuff like that, but, you know, targeted at dev. So it's really, really nice because uh, it just gives you a like a thumbnail and a title and it shows you uh, what's going on. So I thought it's it's something nice because it's really targeted towards um, our target audience. So it's nice. So that's uh, my uh, small tip besides the GitOps tip that I gave at the beginning. Awesome. If people want to connect with you online, where do they find you? Yeah, so I'm at Shimon Toltz at the Twitter, and you can always go to the tree.io and the CR website there. You can try to message me on LinkedIn, but it's gonna be, <laughs> you know, it's it's a, we can do a whole session about like what has LinkedIn become in that regard. But uh, yeah, so Shimon Toltz at Twitter, that's the best place to reach out and. I look forward to hearing from you and listening to feedback from users because this is what we love the most. When people come in, run our, run our CLI, get some stuff, and then they write to us, this is great, but we hate this thing, and why can't I do this and that? <laughs> and then we talk to them and, and we hear their feedback, and this is how we prioritize our roadmap. So I encourage you to give us feedback about our product at the tree.io, D-A-T-R-E-E.io. Awesome. awesome. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap up here. Thanks for coming. This was a lot of fun. Thank you very much for having me. It was really, really fun being here and geeking out about DevOps with you. I feel at home. So thank you very much for having me. All right. Well, until next time, folks, Max out. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit dot com to learn more.